Good morning. Welcome. We are glad you're here. <laughs> hey, Tom. Good morning. Good morning, folks. And if you are a guest with us this morning, we're delighted that you're here with us at Bergen Park. Uh, we're going to be looking in a few minutes. We're going to look at uh, Psalm 139. My name is Gary, by the way. Uh, Pastor Jim is uh, in California, I believe. Uh, so I'm filling in for him today. We're glad you're here, as I said. Psalm 139. So open your smartphones or your Bibles there. Uh, we'll get there in a minute, but we're not quite there yet. Um, we're going to be looking at this morning at what uh, theologians sometimes refer to as theology proper. Uh, theology proper is the study of God himself. And uh, Psalm 139 is one of the great passages uh, on theology proper. Another one is Isaiah chapter 40. So before we go to Psalm 139, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 through 25. Here we go. Surely the nations are like a drop in a the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor the animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. You getting a feel for this? To whom then will we compare God? What image will we compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was formed? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows them away and they wither and a wind, a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Father, as we um, as we sit this morning in your presence, help us, uh, as we sang just a moment ago, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. To look full in his face. May the cares, may the things of this world truly grow dim. Completely dim as we focus on you during this time. Make us different people because we came. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I th like I said, that's one of the great passages on theology proper. I don't know what jumps out at you in there, but as I, as I look at that passage, the thing that jumps out at me is sort of the, the futility, uh, even the sinfulness of attempting to recreate God in our own image or our own form or however we imagine him. And Isaiah tells us that it was a common practice in the ancient world for people to craft idols. If you were a person of means, you could craft your idol out of gold or silver. 
Uh, if you were a poorer person, uh, then out of wood. You would have a craftsman or someone to carve uh, an, an idol out of wood. Now, it was a bit of a problem, though, because these idols were usually anywhere from three to six or eight inches tall, uh, and usually in the form of a human. So when you would put them on a table or a stand or whatever, all they had was their little feet, and so at times they couldn't stand on their own. So they would fashion chains, usually out of silver, uh, and fasten the idol front and back to a little platform. Because, I mean, after all, if you have guests over for dinner or something like that, and you bring them into your living area and you say, behold, my gods, and somebody bumps the table and the god just falls right over flat on his face, that's kind of embarrassing, you know? Doesn't say much for your god. So you had chains to hold them in place. And doesn't it become self-evident, as we even think about that concept, to realize why the Bible is so adamant that we should never create any graven images, any false images of God and who he is and what he's like. And Isaiah even goes so far as to say, uh, have you not seen? Have you not heard? Have you not understood? And a, a crude paraphrase of that would be something like, are you stupid? Are you deaf? Has no one ever taught you this? That God is not like Gold or like silver or like wood. How can the creator be like the things or made of the things that he has created? So, to whom will you compare me, says the Lord. And obviously the question is rhetorical. It answers itself. There is no one and nothing that, we can, that can compare with God. Um, reminds me of the story of a little boy who was in art class in grammar school. And they're all painting or, or drawing a picture of their choice. And the teacher walks up and says, Tommy, uh, what are you drawing? He says, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, well, Tommy, no one knows what God looks like. He said, well, when I'm done, they will. <laughs> and isn't that kind of what we do? Isn't that kind of what we do? That, that we sort of fashion a God that we can live with. Fashion a God that we can that we can tolerate, who isn't too intrusive, who isn't too demanding. And, you know, uh, there's an essential, and this is what I hope to get out of this, there's an essential, incomprehensible mystery about the God of the Bible. And that's of necessity. That's who he is. You know, during the uh, years of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther had a regular exchange uh, with a humanist by the name of Erasmus. And at one point, Luther became frustrated with Erasmus, and he said, Erasmus, your concepts, your idea of God is too human. And Luther was right. He is, too, he is too human to a lot of people, and was to Erasmus. And understand that in 1517, when Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, just five years earlier, in 1512, Michelangelo had completed his masterpiece create, called Creation of Adam, right, on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel just five years earlier. And it is a tremendous work of art, is it not? My PowerPoint background this morning has just a portion of that, just the two hands, the hand of God and the hand of Adam, as I'm sure you've seen that elsewhere. But it was very influential in its day. And as wonderful as it is, and it is a great work of Western art, no, no doubt, 
But it's troubling as well. I didn't want to put the picture up there because I wanted you to imagine it in your own mind. If you haven't seen the entire picture of the, of the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But Michelangelo has created God as a sort of geriatric Superman, you know, with with the body of Arnold Schwarzenegger and the head of Santa Claus. And, I, and I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm really not. It's 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 a marvelous work. But when you look at it, you think to yourself, how futile even a great work of art like this cannot begin to capture who God is and what God is. No canvas, no artwork can ever capture him because there is an essential, incomprehensible mystery that surrounds the God of the Bible. So, who are we going to allow to shape our concept of God? Western art or the scriptures? And I want to suggest to you this morning that that whatever the brush of the artist, in this case or others, was unable to capture, the pen of the inspired prophet does capture. So as we look at Psalm 139, it actually breaks down, if you're studying it, it breaks down really beautifully uh, into four parts with six verses in each part. First, the omniscience of God. He knows everything. Verses 1 through 6. Secondly, the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. Verses 7 through 12. Third, the omnipotence, omnipotence of God. He has all power. Uh, Verses 13 through 17. And finally, in the fourth and final section, man's reaction to God. Verses 18 through 24. We're going to look at those first two sections this week, the omniscience of God and the omnipresence of God. And next week, uh, we'll look at the omnipotence of God and man's response to that. First, the omniscience of God. Notice Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Uh, the Gary paraphrase of verse 1 goes like this. Oh, Lord, you have scanned me and you know me. We, have, we run into scanners almost every day, don't we? In one way or another. Um, if you leave here and stop at either King Supers or Safeway to grab a few things, they're going to take your groceries and they're going to run it over a scanner, right? That beeps. Or maybe you'll do what I did the other day, stop at King Supers quickly and then go to Loaf and Jug for gas, take out my King Supers card, and on the front of the gas pump is a little scan doohickey, and you wave your card in front of it, and it scans your card. Beep. And you get three cents a gallon off your gas. If you're experiencing, Lord forbid, some sort of health difficulties, you might end up having what we call a CAT scan, right? They put you inside this container, and they scan your entire body and come up with incredible insights. Uh, back in New Jersey, where I'm my home state, where I grew up, uh, probably 25 years ago, uh, they came out with a scan for paying your toll. Uh, the Garden State Parkway runs the length of the state, north to south. Uh, and the question, if I run to somebody out here, are you from New Jersey? Yeah, what exit? Because everybody's off of one of the exits, you know. So we're exit 56. And... Um, and if you, for, for years and years, you want to pay your toll, you have to slow down at the toll booth, have your change ready, and drop it in the basket, and then you can keep going. But they came up with this great idea about 25 years ago. You put this little uh, box or little 
card, doohickey, on the dashboard of your car, and you don't even have to stop. You slow down a little bit, and the scanner scans your car, and you just go right on, pays your toll. But I had friends that were very, very uncomfortable with that. Uh, I had one friend tell me, I'm not getting that scan thing. Even though it says that, I'm not getting that. I don't want the government to know if I'm in Atlantic City or Newark or Cape May. I don't want them to know if I'm going from point A to point B. They know enough about us already. Maybe true. I never got the easy pass. But God knows everything about us. He's omniscience. He's omniscient. He knows all. And the word know, theologians call the word know a polymorphous word. Isn't that edifying? Polymorphous word. And all it means is there is a range of possibilities to the word know. Um, just looking at who I can pick on here. Uh, how about Ken and Christy? Caps. I know them. I can pick on them. I know Ken Caps. I do. I know Kenny. But I don't know him nearly as well as Christy knows Kenny. So when we talk about no from a human perspective, there are degrees of knowing, are there not? But with the God of the Bible, he knows completely. He knows totally. He knows all. And think about this. He not only knows all things that are, he knows all things that are possible. And he knows them simultaneously and eternally. Wow. He not only knows all things that are, he knows all things that are possible, and he knows them simultaneously and eternally. He has scanned every one of us. Beep. And he knows everything about us. Everything, not only everything that is, but everything that's possible in our life and our experience. He is omniscient. Verses 2 and 3. Notice verses 2 and 3. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. And he's not talking about uh, distance there because God's omnipresent. Or he's everywhere. He's talking more about time there. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my Ways. Did you notice the merisms there? Anybody know what a merism is? A merism is simply a figure of speech uh, to demonstrate two, two opposites and everything in between. In other words, in our day-to-day speech, we'll say something like, uh, this weather is atrocious, and it's from New York to L.A. Now, we know what we mean by that, right? Because we don't just mean it's atrocious in New York and it's atrocious in L.A. We mean it's atrocious in those two places and everywhere in between, Right? We say it in simpler ways in our day-to-day speech. We say from A to Z. And we mean plus everything in between. You know my sitting down and my rising. You know when I sit down, whether it's to talk to a friend or whatever, and if I'm there for two hours and I rise up, you not only know when I'm going to sit and when I'm going to get up, you know everything in between that happens. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts From eternity past, you comprehend my path, my steps, and my lying down. Lord, when I get out of bed in the morning, you know when I'm going to get up. You know exactly when I'm going to go to bed at night. And you know everything. You know the path I'm going to walk for the entire day. From my rising to my sleep. You know everything in between. 
And you know what's really scary to me is not only does he know what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it, he knows why I'm going to do it. He knows my motivations, my deepest motivations, the few that may be good and all the ones that are not so good. Notice verse 4. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. <laughs> you know everything I'm going to say before I even say it. You know, no wonder people created those idols. This God is a nosy God. He's a God that has his, his eyes and his ears in every single place. There's no corner where I can hide. There's no conversation he doesn't overhear. There's no private thought that I can have because he knows it all. And guess what? If you're a Jersey boy and you resent Easy Pass and what that scan might make known about you, you're really going to worry about this one. Because everything is known about me to my creator. Big Brother is watching. Now, some commentators have said, if you... If you pick up a commentary on the Psalms, you'll see that some commentators feel that David is bothered by this or annoyed by this or thinks it's too intrusive. Notice, uh, they get this largely from verse 5. Notice verse 5, it says, You have hedged me in behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. And it's true, that word hedged can have the negative connotation of um, suppressing or uh, enclosing. But it can also have the positive con con connotation of protection and care. And frankly, I want to suggest that it's pretty clear to me that David sees it that way, as care, as protection. Notice what he says in the very next verse, verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So David's not resentful of this God who, who knows everything about him. He's thrilled by it. He thinks it's awesome. You know, Janine and I um, planted a church in New Jersey, uh, started back in the 90s, and we, were, we had no one with us. Uh, we just, when we arrived in the town, we just started meeting people. I was knocking on doors, and we quickly discovered that when you plant a church from nothing, everything is your responsibility. And so as we began to uh, have services, the worship, I preached, I led worship, you know, it was kind of a, a sideshow. And Janine was doing uh, virtually everything else, uh, including uh, by the end, you know, in a church plant, if you don't grow, you don't survive. So we had to be constantly reaching out to our community and we had a Bible or a a vacation Bible school the very first summer that we were open. And I'll never forget uh, one of the, it was either that year or the following year, one of the very first VBSs we had. The theme verse of the week was verse 1 of Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And when during the week, every time that that verse was repeated, the kids in unison would say, Awesome! Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Awesome. Don't do it with me. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Awesome. Yeah, and it is. And that's what David's saying. This isn't this isn't something to be resentful about. This isn't something to be angry about. This is awesome. 
What a God. What a God. He's thrilled by it. Thrilled by the omniscience of God. God knows everything. Secondly, David wants to introduce us to the omnipresence of God. Notice verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The rhetorical question answers itself, doesn't it? Where can I go to get away from the spirit of God? There is no getting away from it. Where can I flee from his presence? There is no way to flee from his presence. You ever um, either started a Bible study or um, some sort of a meeting and somebody opens in a word of prayer and you'll hear them say this. Lord, as we come into your presence this morning. And Lord, forgive me, but whenever I hear that, it's a combination of my sinful nature and my own sarcastic wit. The first thing I say to myself is, where do you think you were before that? Because guess what? We don't come into his presence. We might come into an awareness of his presence. We might sit in his presence, but we don't come into his presence. We're always in his presence. Lord, where can we go from your spirit? There is nowhere. Where can we flee from you? There is nowhere. Notice verses 8 through 10. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, or your version might say in the depths, or it might say in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, here's David making a reference to the speed of light. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's a third narism there. Did you notice it? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. It's, it's a little bit like what, uh, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Neither height nor depth can separate us from the love of God or anything in between. And that's the idea here. I can, David says, if I could, if I could stand on the shores... Uh, make it the shores of Israel, looking out over the Mediterranean to the west. And if I could take the speed of light, the speed of the dawn, and, and fly to the remotest part of the ocean, when I got there, you'd already be there, God. <laughs> you're already there. And you're everywhere in between. And if I make my bed in the highest heavens by some miracle, or in the lowest depths, you're in both places. And you're everywhere in between. You're everywhere. And notice what he says in the first, first half of verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. And I want to say this is the most precious insight of all to David. The word fall there, when it says, surely the darkness shall fall on me. The word fall literally means to crush or to bruise. And, and darkness is a metaphor for anything that could cause David or you or I that could cause harm. So he's saying, if I say, surely this, this catastrophe, this dark thing is going to crush me. We all have dark times of the soul, don't we? As one pastor friend of mine likes to call it, dark moments of the soul, dark periods of the soul. 
when we ask the question, why God? Or, in relation to his omnipresence, maybe we ask the question, where God? Where are you? Lord, where were you when my addiction got the better of me recently? Or Lord, where were you when that temptation that I've struggled with for so long, where were you last week when I caved to that temptation? Or Lord, where were you when my spouse walked out? Or Lord, where were you in that meeting last month when I lost my temper in front of everyone? Or maybe for you it's, Lord, where are you when depression grips me? And it seems to grip me so tight that there's no getting away from it. Or if you're like me, I might say, Lord, where are you when anxiety grips me so completely that it's really not anxiety any longer? It's panic. And I've struggled with it my whole life. Where are you when that grips me, Lord? Maybe, maybe you're older and you live alone. And you say to yourself, Lord, where are you when loneliness surrounds me so completely that I feel like I'm going to die? Or maybe I wish I could die. Where is God during those dark times of the soul? Surely, surely, says David, those dark times will crush me because I'll be hidden from you, right? No, look at the second half of verse 11 and verse 12. Even then, the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. The the most thrilling part about God's omnipresence for David is no matter where I go, nothing can ever separate me from your love. And no dark, no dark moment of the soul, no dark period of the soul in my life can ever, ever separate me from you. I may not consciously be aware of your presence at that moment, but I'm in it. I'm always in it. And for David, that's the greatest comfort of all. And, in the, and guys, in, in those dark seasons... Don't trust feelings. Trust the book. No, better yet, trust the God of the book. Remember the old saying, feelings come, feelings go. Feelings are so deceiving. I'll place my faith in the word of the Lord. Nothing else is worth believing. And it's true. It's absolutely true. You know, it's true, whether Isaiah 40, Psalm 139, or some other portion of Scripture, there is an essential, incomprehensible mystery about the God of the Bible. There truly is. But there is also certainty 
There is absolute certainty. He has made promises to us that are absolutely and completely certain because he's the one making them. In, um, in the mid-20th century, specifically um, right at the end of World War II, in the late 1940s, there was a lady who taught uh, English literature at Wheaton College in Illinois. Her name was Effie Wheeler. And Effie was an extremely popular uh, faculty member on campus, uh, much loved, uh, not only for her uh, personality, but for the depth of her walk with the Lord. And she was having some health problems and finally uh, got a clear word from her doctor. It was in May of 1949. She had been on faculty for nearly 20 years. And the graduating class was about to leave and the school year was done. And she got up in chapel in May of 1949 and said this to the student body and to the faculty. She said, my doctor has at last given what has been his real diagnosis of my illness for weeks. An inoperable case of cancer of the pancreas. Now, if he had been a Christian, he wouldn't have been so dilatory and shaken. For he would have known, as you and I do, that life or death is equally welcome. Do you hear that? And when we live in the will and knowledge of the presence of the Lord, death or life are equally welcome. If the Lord has chosen me to go to him soon, I go gladly. On the other hand, I remember that Christ is still the great physician. And so in simple faith and trust, I say to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me whole. But either way, I await his answer utterly at peace. I do not say a cold goodbye to you, but rather a warm Auf Wiedersehen. Till I see you again, by God's power and grace, either this coming fall on campus or later in the blessed land, either is fine by me. With a heart full of love for every individual among you, Effie Jane Wheeler. Where did she get that kind of certainty? You ask the average person on the street, what's going to happen when you die? Going to heaven or hell? Oh, I don't know. I hope I go to heaven. I hope so. There's no hope here, guys. Not in the sense of balancing probabilities. There is only an absolute certainty of what will happen the minute her eyes close in death. She's absolutely certain that she will be forever in the presence of her Savior. There's no mystery about that. None at all. That's an absolute certainty. Either death or life. Each, either, are equally welcome. Reminds me of what Paul said in Philippians, doesn't it? To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Gain. Yeah. We don't think of it that way, though, do we? 
But I think as we look at the incomprehensible mystery of God and the awesomeness of who he is, we also need to remind ourselves of the absolute certainty of his promises to us. That for every single person who puts their trust, their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they are guaranteed eternal life. As an absolutely free gift, you can never earn it, you can never work for it, you will never deserve it. Or I. But he gives it to us freely. Romans 4.16. Look it up when you get home. With a, love, with a heart full of love for each and every individual among you, I await his answer. And either is as welcome, death or life, either is as welcome with me. If you're not sure that you have eternal life, you're not sure that you're a member of God's forever family, do me a favor. Don't let the sun go down on this day without talking to someone about the gift of eternal life. The Bible's real clear about it. It's free, it's simple, it's clear, and it's for every single person. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your amazing grace. And thank you that even though you are a God of mystery in many ways, you're also a God of certainty. And that certainty comes through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and for his sake. Amen.